Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sorry, everyone. Oh, my God. We sang the same song. I mean, it's like we've been friends for a long time or something. Oh, just like oh Fifi has descended. She's come down from her throne. Truth coming out of her well to shame mankind. <laughs> Welcome back to Murder in the Land of Oz. I'm Jess. I'm Ellen. And we're here to talk to you about murder. We haven't introduced ourselves in a long time. Oh, I know. <laughs> That felt strange. So sorry. Forgot my own name. Yeah, well, look. Um, Ellen is here in the pod loft. And we're we in the loft. We're in the loft. We're eating caramello koalas. It's a good like, time. Like, you're not my dad. No. We miss Zane. It's just not the same without Zane silently chuckling. Maybe that's why, because, like, I don't know about you, but, like, it seems really empty. Yeah. Recording. Yeah. Like a, a member of the squad is missing. Member of the squad, he it's is. You and me, Zane and Fifi. Like this is a <laughs> family of four. This is a very conventional two-parent, two-child family. <laughs> me and Fifi, the children. <laughs> Fifi's like no, no. <laughs> um, this is our last episode in our Tasmanian season. It is our last episode in Tasmania. Next one, it will be. South, South Australia. Australia. I almost said South Africa. <laughs> no, they're in the land of South Africa. Africa. Damn it. I thought a joke would appear uh-uh. midway through that sentence, but it didn't. That's a shame. We did get a request from somebody on Instagram to look at a New Zealand case. Absolutely. We will. We will Murder go. in the land of Nz. Nz. And Kiwis. Murder in the land of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Who is a motherfucking legend. She's the best person that's ever lived. Oh, she's such a fucking stunner. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. Uh, well, it's Ellen's go today. We'll just cut to the chase. I don't have any housekeeping. Do you have housekeeping? Um, cool. Cool. Well, let's just cut to the motherfucking chase. Great. We? Let's just do it. Let's just do a podcast, shall we? Let's, let's dive on in. All right. Let's go feet first. What you got today? I've got an interesting one. All right. I mean, not that we usually cover like <laughs> just like every other episode we've done is complete. Delete the rest of it. This is the one. This is no, <laughs> it's a bit of a conf- it's not confusing, but it's a bit of like a make up your own mind. What do you think happened? It's unsolved. It's a mystery. Maybe not even technically a murder. All right. Um, and it is connected to something that I am deeply passionate about, which is saving the environment. We got a. We got a wildlife warrior over here. <laughs> you got a long-haired hippie radical. 
<laughs> I'm here to smoke weed and live in a tree. But Please don't. not the smoking weed part. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> so this story and the story of basically like the green political movement in the entire world begins with a little place in the southwest of Tasmania called Lake Pedder. So Lake Petter? Pedder. P-E-D-D-R. Pedder. Pedder, like pitter-patter, but like pedder. Stunning. I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. We can pronounce it. We can spell it. We can <laughs> move on. So in the early 1970s in Tasmania, the state government – well, in the, sorry, in the late 60s in Tasmania, the state government and the Tasmanian Hydroelectric Commission created a plan to dam the Gordon and Serpentine rivers for the expansion of the Tassie hydroelectric scheme. There's a lot of – environmental backstory in this episode just warning everyone i'm here for it i'm here for it fifi's here for it <laughs> let's get natural um <laughs> in so doing this lake lake Petter, would be flooded um lake Petter had formerly been protected through its national park status but the government revoked its status in 1967 so the hydroelectric project could go ahead so the lake was a glacial outwash lake around 14 kilometres in circumference, which was surrounded by mountains on one side and grass plains on the other, with two miles of unique alpine beach with starting, startlingly white gravel sand. Imagine, if you would, a lake like in the middle of the mountains in like Canada. Ooh. Like imagine like a, a lake with like a full beach just in the middle of like an alpine forest. Wow. It was really like unique. It was the only, I don't know if it was the only kind in the world, but it was definitely the only kind in Tasmania. Um, so it was, as I said, situated in the southwest of the state and it was accessible only by light plane or a very long walk. And it was one of the most beautiful natural places in Tasmania and a great draw for bushwalkers and hikers and the like. The Hydroelectric Commission was the largest government agency in Tasmania at the time and the largest employer. Thousands of people had been employed thanks to the creation of the commission in 1914. And as well as that, it was the majority provider of power to the state and Tasmania is still powered by 90% hydroelectric power so cool it's pretty, it's pretty cool that's pretty cool shame about all the shady shit that you're about to learn about great but, you know so in May of 1967 the proposal for the dam was put before the state parliament so the proposal was quite controversial although the hydroelectric commission was powerful and a lot of people supported the construction of the dam there were more than just long-haired hippies who were against the idea a, peti a petition to stop the um, dam garnered 10,000 signatures, the most ever collected in Tasmania at the time. Tasmanian Premier Electric Eric Reese. Oh, no. What a jazzy nickname, Electric <laughs> Eric, was forced to create a committee that would examine the proposal and look at alternatives that could possibly save the lake. But the committee essentially approved the proposal wholesale and the legislation was passed. In response, the Save Lake Petter National Park Group was formed. So it consisted of a group of concerned citizens, mainly from Hobart, that began to lobby for the protection of the lake. They needed a serious, concerted effort to save the lake because the Hydroelectric Commission was the power on the land, so much so that it was said that the government was an agent of the Hydroelectric Commission rather than the other way around. So 1.6 million acres of state land in the southwest was to be bequeathed to the Hydroelectric Committee, from Low Rocky Point in the junction of the Gordon and Serpentine Rivers to Mount Mueller to the junction of the Hewan and Weld Rivers to Adamson's Peak and to the South Cape. A full 10% of the area of the state was going to be ruled by the Hydroelectric Commission, including Lake Pedar and its surrounds. Enough people were upset about the project that Eric Reese ended up losing the 1969 election, but if they thought the newly elected Liberal Party was going to listen to the desires of the people, well, they were dead-ass wrong. 
So the project was full steam ahead and the new Premier Angus Benthune told people that there would be power shortages if it didn't. And at this point in Tasmania's history, like, you know, Tasmania has always been considered a bit of like a rural backwater. But having this like really robust power scheme meant that a lot of the like, you know, Tasmania was quite quickly industrialising in a scale that it couldn't before. So for, you know, the vast majority of the people of Tasmania, having that, you know, easy, cheap power was a lot more significant in their lives than protecting a lake. Um, so the Save Lake Petter group needed to mount a serious attack if they were going to save the lake. So enter now an unlikely activist named Brenda Heen. Brenda was the widow of a dentist who worked as an organist at Scott's Church in Hobart. Brenda was very much like a little like society lady. She was like a tea drinking like. Oh, she's a bit tizzy. Ooh, she's quite tizzy. She was very like 1960s tiz. Love it. Um, her father best had. Best kind of tiz. Best kind of tiz. Um, her father had owned a fish and chip shop, but her mother had raised her four daughters up to be ladies. And Brenda had certain airs and graces about her. Um, she had a rich background in music, being a member of the Hobart Phil- Philharmonic Society, the Memorial Church Choir, and she was a solo pianist with the Tasmanian Orchestra. And she also loved the outdoors. Although she was a lady, I keep on saying lady, <laughs> doing lady, this little like, doing shimmy, lady, lady um, she was no delicate flower. She had done overnight camps in the cold and wet, hiked up mountains, down valleys and across rivers, and covered a significant chunk of the state on excursions of the Hobart Walking Club which sounds like they just go walking down the street in Hobart, but it was a hiking and bushwalking club. Um, so Brenda had heard a little of the Hydroelectric Commission's plan to fl- flood Lake Pedder from the newspapers and from the walking club, and she had signed a petition against it and helped with fundraisers and things. But it wasn't until she went on a trip there on a bit of a soul-searching journey after her husband died that she became galvanised into action. So on Christmas Eve, a short while after her husband died, she took a trip via like, light plane to Lake Pedder. On the journey over, as they were flying over the incredible scenery, the pilot conversationally informed her that in a short time, the whole thing was going to be flooded. Flying overhead, seeing it from a perspective that so few people in the world would get to see, she was suddenly enraged that the government could destroy such pristine and ancient beauty with a simple snap of their fingers. So Brenda wasn't a radical. She was in her 60s, she was a society lady, and by all accounts, she was quite conservative. Um, Although she'd never been there herself, she was quite proud of her British heritage, and she spoke with that, like... You know that slightly English Australian accent that mm. like old timey ABC news presenters had? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, very to ABC cultivated news. Australian. Yeah. Um, and she was a per- she was just a person who found beauty and peace in nature and who had formed a special connection to this place, like so many others that fought to save it. After being apathetic to politics her whole life, this was the issue that got her out of the tea rooms and onto the streets. Oh, out of the tea rooms and onto the street, hey? I have no idea if she actually went into tea rooms. (laughs) I just thought that was a jazzy line. I like that jazzy line. So she became the leader of the Save Lake Petter campaign. So in March of 1971, Brenda and her other co-leaders held a town hall meeting that turned the Save Lake Petter Save Lake Pedder National Park Group, perhaps thinking that maybe, you know, 50 odd years into the future, a podcaster would be covering this case and they would find Save Lake Pedder National Park Group to be pretty hard to say. They changed the name into the Lake Pedder Action Committee. Stunning. So Brenda, the members of the Hobart Walking Club and all the Pedder people had led a pilgrimage of 1,000 people to Lake Pedder in protest of the dam. They also demanded that a referendum be called so the public could vote on the issue, but this was quashed by the government. 
It seemed to the Action Committee that the government was completely bypassing usual democratic processes to push the dam ahead. They couldn't get the government to listen through official channels and media coverage condemned them as hippies and radicals against industrialization. In July of 1971, Brenda had an article published in the Mercury discussing the possibility of putting in a bypass canal that would leave Lake Pedder in its natural state, but create two lakes on either side for the dam overflow. So this option was presented to the Hydroelectric Commission when the project was in its early stages and they had that committee reviewing all the things to do with it. Um, But it was vetoed as a canal would be unsightly across the face of the mountains. Having been to the area, unlike a lot of the people who were putting forward all this information, Brendan knew that there was a low-lying plain on the southern side of the lake that a canal could be constructed through without being seen. She did like a full analysis about the volume, like the differences in like the volume of water that could be held from the three lakes rather than just the one, the cost to the construction already going, everything like that. She'd written out and was like, I am a 62 year old woman and I have done all this work and you have done nothing and save this damn lake. Um, Yes. So the action committee wanted the hydroelectric commission to investigate the possibility of the canal. By now, news of the destruction of the lake had reached the mainland and the federal environment minister was sent down to chat to Bethune and see if a compromise could be reached. But Bethune essentially said to him to get fucked. The message of the action committee had spread though. Protests were held not just in Hobart, but in capital cities on the mainland as well. But all the while, waters in Lake Petter were starting to rise. More needed to be done. So in March of 1972, Brenda gave a rousing speech at Hobart Town Hall in defence of the lake. They're pleased to the Tasmanian government falling on deaf ears. The Lake Pedder Action Committee needed to take an even bolder stance. One option that had been floated but they didn't really go with was a um, this communist union organiser was like, we'll just do bans so any person who is a union member can't work on constructing the dam. And Brenda was like, thank you, but no. <laughs> Don't really want to be in league with the, the communists. communists. <laughs> it is the 1970s. <laughs> Sorry. So sorry, but no. Um, a number of people spoke at the meeting, including Utah's ecologist Richard Jones, one of the co-heads of the Action Committee, and a conservationist named Milo Dunphy. Both were the kind of types you would expect at a hippie Save the Earth style rally, but Brenda surprised a lot of the people gathered as a polished older lady. She surprised them even more when she said that she wished it was still two to time so they could fittingly dispose of those characters who call themselves our leaders. So she was essentially like, guillotine? <laughs> Anybody wanna wanna guillotine? I think we should guillotine. Um, she quoted the assessment by UNESCO that by destroying it, the government would be committing the worst act of environmental degra- degradation since Europeans arrived in Tasmania, which Woof. is sav. <laughs> which is fully sav. Savion Blanc. Um, she closed out her speech by declaring the creation of the United Tasmania Group, an official political party that would stand in the next state election to fight for the lake. This would be the first ever green political party in the entire world. Wow. I know. How cool. My eyes like dinner plates. I know, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so when Richard calls for all those in favour of the creation of the party to say yay, like they do in, you know, all those in favour say aye. Aye. <laughs> all those opposed me. Well, Get when, him, boys. <laughs> when he said everybody there, they assumed that everybody there was like, you know, petty people, like people who were there to save the lake. But they were surprised when they called for nays and a huge like rousing call of nay went through the meeting, which had been infiltrated by workers from the Hydroelectric Commission. But they were like, OK, well, that was bad. We're just going to we're just going to do that again. So 
he's like, oh, no, I misread something. I have to call it again. All those in favour say aye. And all the people were like, aye. They screamed it so they could drown out, you know, the dissenting voices. So the United Tasmania group was formed and they ran a very strong campaign. So the election was going to be the next month in April of 1972. And Brenda was the candidate for Franklin. Um, but they ended up falling just short of winning any seats in the election. They had gotten 3.9% of the state vote, which was a large enough number to cause stress to the newly re-elected Premier, Electric Eric Reese and Alan Knight, the head of the Hydroelectric Commission. The hippies had been a thorn in their side, but now, even with the failure to win any seats, it was clear that they were not going away. Protests would continue to be held. The UTG held a rowboat vigil on the flooded waters of Lake Pedder, which was, like, absolutely amazing. Some of the pictures that you can see of, like, these hundreds of people on rowboats, like, rowing in water that used to be, like, mountains and everything like that. It's just, it's really, it's really moving. And they continued to camp out there and take people there and hold pilgrimages and things like that to show people, people that hadn't seen the lake before, what was happening and, you know, as a reminder to themselves, I guess, of what they were fighting for. So one day some members of the UTG got a mysterious phone call telling them to, quote, take certain acts of parliament to a certain lawyer and a certain law firm and ask their opinion about the validity of the Lake Pettis scheme, which they did because who doesn't take legal advice from anonymous phone calls? So the Act of Parliament in question was the National Parks and Wildlife Act. Um, So this is federal. This is a federal law. So in July of 1972, the Lake Pedder Action Committee fronted a legal case against the HEC saying that the government did not have the proper authority to flood the Crown land surrounding the lake. The Australian Conservation Foundation, as well as the International Union for Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources, which needs to work on their name, made pleas both to the... (laughs) Premier of Tasmania and to the Prime Minister to save the lake, but the government remained silent. Petitions were sent both to the Prime Minister and the Premier and even the Queen. The Lizzie's action, like, Lizzie's fuck like, it. A, a, a lake uh, in where? Do we still own that? Do we still own <laughs> Is that still one of mine? I'm not sure if I'm responsible for this. Um, so the Action Committee was still con- um, continuing to gain momentum. The head of the Hydroelectric Commission appeared on the news alongside Brenda Heen to plead for his side of the story, which was like, ah, oh, money. Money, money, money. Money, money. Oh, that's a fantastic point, but money, 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 money. Money, money? <laughs> money. So a journalist asked Knight whether or not the Hydro really gave a damn for Tasmania since they were losing so many of their natural resources to the power scheme. Knight replied, well, it gives lots of dams for Tasmania. We've got 30 or 40 of them now. Woof. Like, good joke, but also like, no. <laughs> um, by this point in time, sorry, just totally lost my place. By this point in time, the project had progressed to the damming of the Serpentine ri- River, so the battle for Lake Pedder seemed in the eyes of the government and the HEC at least to have already been won. Although it was kind of slowing a bit, I guess, thanks to the legal case. But on national television, Brenda Heen confirmed to both the interviewer and to the head of the HEC that the fight to save Lake Pedder would continue. So both the commissioner and the premier are getting pretty bloody sick of Brenda Heen and her hippie group. So in August of 1972, Premier Eric Reese blames the Action Committee radicals for a bomb threat that was placed against him. He had missiles. Brenda's like, I'm a fucking lady. Yeah, she's like, bombs are so uncouth. I'd poison you like a real woman. (laughs) Um, he had missiles thrown at his house, although no damage was done, and his wife was also reportedly harassed. The Lake Pedder Action Committee um, denied responsibility and stated that several of their members had also received threats. 
So at this point in time, the legal case against the HEC was being debated at the Legislative Council, and on August 17, 1972, the Council gave its ruling. The HEC would be allowed to continue its operations, essentially without prejudice. The incredibly awkwardly named Hydroelectric Commission Removal of Doubts Bill confirmed that the HEC had essentially free reign over the crown land that surrounded the lake. The Action Committee, as you can imagine, was not stunned Mm -hmm. with this response. Not stunning. So with the bill passed, the dam likely to continue operation and the lake continuing to flood, Brenda Heen gears up for one last-ditch effort. If the Tasmanian government won't listen to her, if they keep on treating her group like a bunch of radicals instead of the group of scientists and environmentalists that they are, she's personally going to take the fight all the way to the top. Queen? No. Not not that far. All the way to the second top. Okay. So on the 8th of September 1972, Brenda Heen and a pilot, Max Price, were going to head to Canberra in a World War II plane called the Tiger Moth to skywrite Save Lake Pedder in the air above the nation's capital. Oh. Stunning, right? So stunning. Skywriting. Skywriting, man. Oh, that's so like powerful. some surrendered Dorothy bullshit from The Wizard of Oz. Yes. Love that. Stunning. Old fashioned. You know, it's a classic. Um, so news cameras filmed Brenda as she gave a final rallying cry to the people of Tasmania and Australia to save the beloved lake. It's serious, she says to the camera. We are going to see some parliamentarians in the federal government. Our politicians here have obviously made up their minds since 1967 that nothing further can be done. We feel sure that there, as there are many facets that haven't, haven't been fully investigated, particularly the scientific sign. The journalist asks her, just at what stage will you call it a day? And Brenda responds, I will never call it a day. We will never give up the fight. We still have a lot of British spirit left. Fuck yeah, Brenda. Fuck yeah, Brenda. Then she like flips the double bird and climbs into the plane. No, she doesn't. Um, but she does climb into the plane with Max, the pilot, and the plane takes off onto the f- on to take the fight to Canberra. So four days before the flight, Brenda had received a strange telephone call. An anonymous man called her and asked if she was ready to concede that the battle for Lake Pedder was over. Brenda, in her determined fashion, informed the unknown caller that there is still plenty of work that can be done and that they will never give up the fight. The man asks, what could you and your committee possibly do now? She responds, this week I will be flying to Canberra. We are going to see some parliamentarians in the federal government. Oh, I'm reading the wrong bit. That's fine. Um, Yes, anyway, so she basically tells the voice the man on the other side, that there's no way that they're going to give up the fight, that they're going to fly to Canberra, they're going to take the fight, as I said, all the way to the top and that she's never going to give up. Um, the, there's a bit of a pause and then the voice on the other side of the phone responds, Mrs. Heen, how would you like to go for a swim? And then hangs up. No, uh, I don't like it. Uh-uh. So the plane never makes it to Canberra. Fucking hell. It goes down probably somewhere over the ocean between St. Helens and Flinders Island. The plane was due to refuel at Flinders Island at 1pm but never arrived. Three light aircraft were dispatched from Hobart to search for the, for the tiger moth but returned that night with nothing. A Cessna aircraft capable of picking up single signals from the survival beacons continued the search through the night but also found nothing. It was as if the plane had vanished into thin air. Several people had sighted the tiger moth that day around the St. Helens slash Bay of Fires area, but nobody saw it go down that the police spoke to anyway. The police followed the trail of sightings from the Bay of Fires up to the northeast, but there were time discrepancies of about two hours in the witness accounts that made it hard to definitively pin down where the plane was at what point. So basically like one person one time was like, yeah, I saw the plane around 145. And then somebody like 100 metres down the road was like, yes, I saw that plane at about 1pm, which obviously couldn't couldn't have worked out. Um, So a massive 
Massive air search had been mounted and the research vessel, the Challenger, was searching the oceans. The search was concentrated in the northeast around Flinders Island and the Ferno group of islands. Um, and aircrafts were looking for any signs of debris washing up on any beaches. So by day four of the search, they have 15 aircraft searching. Television and radio news appeals for people to come forward with information about sightings. Aircraft wreckage is found of another plane that crashed in 1966. Um, on day five, a blue scarf is sighted in the water but not recovered. In day six, a helicopter joins the search, searching the Bank Strait and from Cape Natural East to St. Helens to Stony Head and Cape Portland. Scientists inform the search party that the currents would have moved the wreckage further south, so they start concentrating another search party in that area. Mounted police search the remote wilderness of the northeast, and the weather is classic Tassie. The weather is getting worse. Mm. Turbulence on day seven makes searching difficult. On day eight, weather forces the searching aircraft to the ground. By day 10, the weather is so bad as to make searching impossible. There has been no sign of the plane or its passengers for 10 days. The search is called off. The aircraft is officially considered destroyed and Brenda Heen and Max Price are considered likely dead. The police investigation on the ground revealed some very interesting evidence. So the survival beacons from the tiger moth were found stashed behind a bunch of 40-gallon oil drums in the hangar. The side door to the hangar, like where the plane lives, obviously, the side door to the hangar had its lock smashed and had been forced open from the outside with enough force that part of the frame had split. An axe was found stashed behind the hangar. No usable fingerprints were found on the door handle, just smudges. So the police questioned everybody who had gone in and out of the hangar and although people had said that they'd noticed that the door wasn't opening or closing properly, there again were discrepancies in when precisely the door seemed to have started misbehaving. Right. So it was beginning to look like it was possible that the plane was sabotaged. So on the 13th of September 1972, only a few days after the plane went missing, the Action Committee demanded that the government establish an inquiry into the vanishing of the plane. Brenda's threatening phone call, combined with the fact that the hangar had apparently been broken into the night before, seemed to be too much of a coincidence. But the Premier was not keen, shock, saying that the Action Committee had not stated what kind of inquiry they were after or what they were meant to be looking for. No government official had offered any kind of message of sympathy for Brenda, despite the fact that she was still the leader of a political party at the time. Two days later, Reese was forced to deny the claim that the, he had told the police force to go easy on the investigation into the possible sabotage of the plane. Reese said that the police investigation was being conducted fully above board, and the Commonwealth government also stated that there would not be a federal inquiry into the missing plane at that stage. But some things weren't adding up. So Maury Price, who is the son of Max Price, the pilot, knew – this came out quite a while later, but this is around this time – um, knew the search pilot had radioed in that he had found debris on Swan Island in the Banks Strait that he was certain was the wing and part of the tail of the tiger moth in the water. He asked for a boat to be sent in from Swan, Swan Island, but the Department of Aviation said not to worry. The police boat was in the area and would arrive on scene shortly. The police boat at the time was sheltering from bad weather around St. Helens and it was not possible for it to attend to the area until the next day. By then, the current from the east coast of Tasmania would have sent any debris halfway to New Zealand. So why wouldn't civil aviation just send a boat from Swan Island that was close by and could handle the rough water? Maury believed that the higher-ups knew more about the disappearance of his father and Brenda Heen than they were letting on. Maury said that about a week before his final flight, Max had come home and said that somebody had been fiddling with his plane. Maury was of the opinion that it would have been possible for somebody to come in and tamper with the fuel tanks. So Max had had a tank put into the tiger moth that had oil in it that was used for sky riding. And now I'm definitely going to get the science of this wrong, but I'm going to do my level best to explain it. 
So the the skywriting happens by oil flowing into the exhaust and coming out as smoke. So the skywriting oil tank had to be disconnected from the normal fuel tank during non-skywriting flight and then would be reconnected when you wanted to write something in the air. Um, so Maury believed that someone had put had connected it so the oil the skywriting oil would flow into the normal fuel tank, which would make the fuel flow straight into the exhaust, which means they would lose all of that oil at once, basically. I hope that made any kind of sense. So they would have gone down around the northeast when the plane was due to refuel at Flinders Island. So the in around about 2007, this lad named Scott Millwood um, was given the police files for this case by an anonymous person with a note that said, use this for good. So he read all, all the police files, which up until that point were sealed, um, and decided to create the documentary um, called Whatever Happened to Brenda Heen. And as part of that, he created a tip line and a $100,000 reward for anybody that saw the plane or could find the plane, essentially. That's good incentive. Good incentive. So he received a number of tips um, from people who had seen the tiger moth flying in the air that day that had never been interviewed by police. So some people had claimed to have seen plumes of smoke. Other had said that they had seen debris. Um, and there was also a curious sighting from a person who was a skipper on a scallop boat that had pulled up a woman's dress and a bottle of champagne around Eddystone Point not too long after the plane had gone missing. So Brenda had packed a nice bottle of champagne for her journey to Canberra, perhaps to celebrate if the federal ministers agreed to hold the dam. None of this information went anywhere with the police. So there's a few things happening at once. It seems like the police investigation isn't really being as focused as it should. It seems like leads aren't going places and they're pretty happy to just close the file. And the motive to sabotage the plane was pretty clear for Brenda Heen in that she was gaining too much support and it could have been, you know, some person who was at the hyd- worked at the Hydroelectric Commission or something like that who was like, right, drastic measures, I'm going to take one for the team and murder this woman. But there was another possible motive as well. So Max Price, the pilot, ran Tasmanian Aviation Services with two men, Jim England and Bill Flores, and there were some questions about the finances of the business. Max Price was a bit of a playboy and a risky flyer, and he had done a lot of work with environmental groups and the like, taking them out to Lake Pedder. As I mentioned before, it was kind of only accessible by hiking or by plane. Um, And therefore, the business had missed out on a number of government contracts with regards to the hydroelectric scheme. So you know, you still have to fly out your construction workers and stuff like that. They're not going to go with a flight company that had connections with the environmental group who was protesting it. Um, Max was also in debt and he'd borrowed a substantial amount of money from his mistress. Ooh. I know, zesty. His mistress was also his sister-in-law. You dog. I know, right? So when I said bit of a playboy, I meant bit of a fuckboy. Um. So Bill Flores was the one who looked after the books of the business and there were some things that weren't adding up. So some of their business was done under the table, paid with cash, and an investigator from the tax department did audit the business. So Joyce Price, Max Price's sister-in-law and mistress, believed that Max was the intended victim, not Brenda, and that Bill had killed him to cover up the discrepancies in the financials. She had reported to the police that Max believed that Bill was stealing money from the company and that she had been on a flight with Max once before to Mariah Island, when the engine suddenly cut out and they were forced to do an emergency landing. She believes that this was the first attempt on Max's life. And as a pilot himself, Bill would know that they were, that all that would be needed to break the engine would be a bit of water or sugar in the fuel tank. 
So when the cops came to question Bill Flores on the 9th of September 1972, he was the one that pointed out the broken door. Although he said that he had personally not seen evidence that the plane was sabotaged, but he did inform the police that some papers were also missing from his office, including the flight summary of the Tiger Moth, which would have detailed its intended flight path. If the police had had that information, it would have allowed them to narrow their focus on a particular geographic location. But as I mentioned, they've ended up basically basically looking all over the northeast, anywhere where anybody reported seeing any plane that day. Um, so when the police investigated the company books, although they weren't, they asked for $200 to do an official audit, but they weren't granted it for some reason. And that is one of the things that make people think that the government just wanted it all to go away. Um, but they did have a bit of investigation into the books. And while they did find some discrepancies, there wasn't really enough going on that seemed to motivate a murder. It seemed more like a case of bad bookkeeping than a serious crime. Regardless, no further investigation was done down this pathway. So the broken door is possibly the best evidence for any kind of sabotage. And there are multiple possible explanations, depending on what motive you believe is most likely. Either someone wanting to kill Brenda um, broke the door to sabotage the plane or Bill Flores broke it to make it look to make the sabotage look like an outside job or, as was written in the official police report, someone from the Lake Petter Action Committee broke in, broke the door to make a simple case of a missing plane look like a planned murder. So the police were like, the Action Committee wants to like use this disappearance for publicity, so they broke the door. It's possible that they broke the door in order to make it look like sabotage. So once the book slash doco, whatever happened to Brenda Heen was released, part of the new evidence that was uncovered was a report from a man named W.A.B. Campbell from the Tassie CIB. So the report detailed information from a man named Alan Hewer, who was employed by Parks and Wildlife and was involved for the search for the tiger moth, and a reporter from the ABC. So the reporter had uncovered information that the break into the hangar was indeed planned by people with the intention of stopping Brenda Heen. Upon entering the hangar, they added sugar to the second petrol tank. When Max swapped the tanks, the sugar would have absorbed the fuel and clogged the fuel lines, which obviously would cause the engine to stop. Max allegedly tried to land the plane somewhere near Mount William National Park, but the wheels got caught in the sand and the plane flipped over, killing Brenda and Max. Two people from the Icena Estate, which is the land where the plane landed, um, came upon the crash scene, contacted somebody of a very high standing in Hobart and were ordered to hide the crash site and bury the bodies. So in the course of this investigation into this track, um, the reporter re- reportedly received anonymous phone calls threatening him and telling him to essentially stop asking questions about the hiding of the bodies or else. So in 1979, Alan Hewer discovered an area on Purden Beach that had evidence of being dug out with a mechanical digger. The area that seemed to have been disturbed had around six to seven years of growth over it and there was a piece of corroded metal entangled in the shrubbery. Hewer stated that it seemed large enough to bury a tiger moth and he and a colleague began digging, but they were prevented from discovering much else due to the incoming tide. So this is like quite nearby to where the reporter alleged that the plane had landed and flipped over. Mm. So there was some parts of like the mud that looked like they had been taken out with a mechanical digger. Right. And then there was another area that had like all the shrub over it and stuff like that. So the theory was that they had buried the bodies, put this like mud or dirt or whatever over the top and then eventually overgrowth kind of covered it and everything like that so and it's a it's also a a remote area so not a lot of people would ever go by it so it seemed like a pretty logical place because if 
these people were told by somebody, go and hide a plane. They'd need a pretty fuck off large area to hide it. And also because this place was like a working estate, they had access to, you know, diggers and things that they could have possibly used to hide two bodies in a plane. But obviously nothing in this report that is printed in the book can really be verified. So the mystery still hasn't been solved to this day. It is still a big controversy in Tasmania and it does still get talked about. Um, I want to say that Bill Flaws, the person who was in business with Max Price, kind of has been hounded by this case his whole life. There is really no evidence apart from the words of Max Price's mistress slash sister-in-law that he was involved at all. And although the police investigation wasn't as good as it should have been, they investigated the financials of the company and nothing really seemed suspicious enough to cause motive. But he's like still to this day, I don't know if he's still alive, I think he is, um, but still to this day has people accusing him of the murder. I think that a question you have to ask when you're trying to solve this crime is whether or not we believe that the government would do something like kill an activist in order to, the thing was, is that the dam was already basically done. Mm. You know, there was really not that much that they would have been able to do. They, you know, they could stop the dam and defund the hydroelectric scheme or whatever, but the race had basically already been won. You know, the lake was dammed. It was basically destroyed. They'd gotten their money would they really have sabotaged the plane and killed her? But then again, it's kind of obvious that the plane was sabotaged because the door was broken into and the survival beacons were hidden. So who did it? Who did it? Who committed this crime? Um, so yes, their bodies have never been found. Um, about 30 years afterwards, there was a service. There was obviously funerals held for them, but there was a memorial service held. I think it was the 35th. 30th or 35th anniversary of the disappearance honoring Brenda Heen and like um, Bob Brown and Christina Milne and a lot of the current Tasmanian Greens um, paid their respects and everything like that as the founder of this huge political mu- movement, which is like stronger than ever before now. So from Lake Pedder, obviously that wasn't successful, but there was also a plan in the 1980s to dam the Franklin River, which was protested by a bunch of people, including Dr. Bob Brown, who then became the leader of the Tasmanian Greens and then went on to form the Australian Greens. So basically from this one woman, essentially, who was the leader of this little tiny political party in Tasmania, the entire Green political movement, which is now spread throughout the entire world, was created. And nobody knows what happened to her. That's so sad. It is so sad. Oh, Brenda. Oh, Brenda. Tizzy lady, you're just trying to do good. I know, just trying to save save the lake. So that's the disappearance of Brenda Heen and Max Price. Wowee, good job. That's very up your alley, isn't it? I literally... You love a conspiracy theory and you love love the Greens movement. Love the Greens. (laughs) Love... Love the environment. Love the environment. So yes, it was a little bit like up my alley. Um, The book... The book... Look, I'm going to go on a tangent. The book was good, but it was written completely not in chronological order and there was a lot of the author talking about himself. Right. And that's fine, but I was occasionally like, please get to the crime. I want to know about the lady. I have some sympathy for you, but this is kind of not your story. So who wrote it? A guy named Scott Millwood. He's a filmmaker right. who is partially – he's from Tasmania, but he's based in Berlin. The documentary apparently isn't that good. 
Um, I didn't watch it. I prefer to read my true crime content. Um, but the documentary actually follows these two guys named Stan and Derek who are searching for the plane, but they like use like pendulums and divining and like they go to clairvoyance and stuff. No. Yeah. <laughs> they seem uh-uh. like they seem like really nice blokes. They're talked about in the book as well, but I didn't really want to talk about any of that in the episode because I don't think it's really that relevant to what why actually happened. Why you going happened. to clairvoyance? You know, why not? <laughs> Woof. Good job. That was great. I really enjoyed that. Thanks. You were pretty like riveted at points. I was. Planes going missing. Planes going missing. Government maybe uh, killing people. Maybe. I'd believe it. Look, I mean, I'd believe it. The fact that somebody was like, I think possibly disgruntled employee of Hydroelectric Commission rather than like Electric Eric himself. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the call, the I call beforehand. It's the, the big ups people probably would have seen the not seen a lot of benefit from doing something like that. Whereas no. someone who's just a bit miffed yeah. is probably like, mm, yeah, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to know what people think. Yeah, if you have any thoughts, feelings or emotions, you can always send us an email at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com or get in touch with us on Facebook at Murder in the Land of Oz or send us an Instagram message. <gasps> Fifi's joined us at the table. Oh, hello, Fifi. What do you think? Do you think it was a government conspiracy? Meow once for yes, meow twice for no. Unsure. Undecided. <laughs> Undecided. Silence yeah, is an answer in silence itself. Silence is an answer in itself. What do you know, Fifi? What aren't you telling us? Silence. <laughs> Stunning. Uh, well, that is our Tasmania season wrapped up now. So yeah. now on to South Australia. And Ellen, what? It's my turn first up. Yeah. So, Jess, what's next? We haven't actually had an hour. We haven't had a meeting discuss, <laughs> discussing our South Australians. We have an idea of the ones that we're going to do. Um, what's your number one case that you're going to be looking at? The Summerton Man. I've talked about it 50 times. Summerton. Such a good mystery. Also, probably not a murder, but, you know, still, 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 still interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I have yet to. I've been a bit busy with Cluedo. <laughs> Which you can... No, you can't. This will be coming out in like six weeks' time. It will. Cluedo is done. We'll send a request into Brisbane Immersive Ensemble to let Cluedo come to your hometown. I'm sure we'd love to. It'll be great. Um, Yeah, so South Australia. If you have any suggestions... Let us know. Let us know. Let us know. Did you you guys know that in addition to being an actor, Jess is a singer? That wasn't a really good showcase of my singing ability. Um, before all of you jump down our throats and ask us to do Snowtown. We may We be. may be. It is bleak as shit. We're a bit worried that we're a bit too censor. Mm. I tried to watch the movie. Yeah. We're a bit delicate. A we're a bit French. Um, but if there's enough demand, we will we put will on our big girl pants and, and try. Do our best. So let us know. All righty. Well, that's all for us today. So we hope you enjoyed yourself. As I said, rate, review, subscribe. You can join our Patreon family uh, and donate to our podcast. Costs going to obviously funding our research, um, not for our shopping habits. No, it'll be all towards Mitlu. Um, we've got some stuff coming up later on in the year that you can find out about us on Facebook. Leave us a review if you want. If you enjoyed yourself, you should. Yeah. 
Thanks, Stunning. y'all. We'll see ya. Bye. See you in South Australia. Goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.